Blog Talk Radio. As I said, so we can look at 
who we are relative to this notion and explore a new, larger identity because of a lot of the research that he has done here. Larry Dossi, are you on the line with me today? Yes, Mitchell. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the uh, invitation. Absolutely. It's great to have you on again, Larry. You know, I've been a, a fan of yours for a long time, and I <laughs> I quote your work regularly in my lectures and my teaching and my shows, really, because you really have provided us with a um, a body of literature, a one-man library, a body of literature that really is incredibly useful and very always mind-expanding. It it takes the some of the intuitive assumptions, like I was referring to in your book, work on prayer, your work on healing words, the implicit assumptions many of us have about the nature of things, the nature of reality. And you've gone the extra distance of proving scientifically the basis of these assumptions. And uh, that's really seminal work, as I was saying earlier. It's really something pivotal and helps us expand our knowledge base and our willingness to explore in other directions. And this latest book of yours, Larry, is yet another example of that kind of thinking. What what is it that motivated you to... to, uh, take the time to put together this research and formulate it into this book? Well, uh, there are two things. One is my own personal experiences in medicine and healing over the years, but also uh, something you've already uh, touched on. It's the increasing evidence that this is where science and the study of consciousness is actually headed. Uh, If I might give you a personal example, just last week I was – uh, attending a uh, a meeting, an invitation-only meeting of about 40 uh, to 50 people uh, sponsored by the National Academy of Sciences uh, mm-hmm. called Frontiers of Consciousness, Non-Local Awareness. So here you had some of the uh, really elite scientists in the United States gathered around a, a, a couple of conference tables looking at the evidence that just a few years ago, would have been considered uh, rather strange. Strange, and so, radical, so, and unscientific. <laughs> not well, worthy of consideration. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would not have even have been on the table uh, just That's a few right. years ago. And but, how did the conference go? What What was the upshot? <laughs> what was the sense that you uh, read? What was the pulse beat in the room about the subject? Well, it was unequivocal. What we had were some of the leading scholars and researchers in the United States uh, giving these scientists an update on where the research stands. Uh, These were actually people who have done the experiment showing that consciousness is unbounded. Things like telepathy and clairvoyance have now been proven to be a matter of fact. And so there was practically no dispute among these elite scientists about where the data shows uh, and where it points. And so the question was, how do we get this uh, into the culture and get it recognized by the scientific scientific community at large? It was very inspirational, and it just shows that where we've come in terms of a new model and a new way of thinking about our our own minds. You know, I'm I'm so glad to hear this, and it it stands in distinct 
contradistinction to my experience when I went to college, Larry, many moons ago. I went to Bard College, which was known at the time as a rather progressive thinking school, upstate New York, one time part of Columbia University. And I went there with one goal, and that was to prove the existence of God through the existence of telepathy and clairvoyance, which proved that there was really one mind. <laughs> well, well, How do you like we, that? <laughs> I, like I was it not <laughs> ambitious, as you can tell. I, I had no sense of ambition. And, uh, uh, what was interesting uh, for this conversation is that the school, while progressive in virtually all subjects, including quantum physics back then in the early 70s, uh, would not allow me to study parapsychology. They said it was too weird and it required a level of calculus that the professors themselves were not capable of, or if not certainly competent in, and it was off the table. They yeah. would not let me study it. So to mark... The difference between then and now, even at what was considered a progressive school, is formidable. And uh, I'm so glad to see that the world is in many ways catching up, you know. Well, you know, Mitchell, there's that old saying that's attributed to uh, the great uh, physicist Max Planck, who was the mm -hmm. father of the quantum revolution that science yes. changes funeral by funeral. And I imagine <laughs> yes. that some of those people who were dead set against your getting into this area back in the early 70s have just passed on. And really yes. there is a new generation that is much more open now to the empirical evidence for uh, these uh, topics than there were, you know, 40 years ago. Yes. Well, but let me ask you, I mean, um, really, since we've gone this far in this direction, were the people at the Academy of Sciences gathering that you attended, this elite group, I have a feeling they weren't just young scientists, but uh, no doubt men and women who were uh, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, the age span was really interesting. There were people there from their 30s uh, into their 70s, uh, so... But the ones who were there in their 70s were noted uh, for open-mindedness, and some of them uh, have actually done research in this field. I should point yes. out that not very many people use the term uh, parapsychology because it's still a hot button for a lot of people. The term yes. that was used most frequently, frequently were terms like consciousness research, uh, non-local awareness, uh, non-local consciousness, <laughs> and things like that. So we wanted to stay away from those uh inflammatory uh, terms that have caused, you know, so much reflex opposition over the years. Yes, so much reactivity, which <laughs> is a function of the mind and brain that they don't want to take a look at. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> no, that's right, that's right. But I appreciate your point. Uh, you know, I, I've got to, I'm going to just share another little um, anecdote with you. Uh, a very dear friend of mine who is an electrical engineer from Ukraine, it happens, literally a brilliant and very creative scientist who wrote a book decades ago, Larry, called Love. And he understood the vibrational frequency of love, that when we experience it, 
It opens us up and allows our blood to flow better, our lymphatic drainage to work better, our brain to actually work better synaptically. And so whenever he'd see me, he'd say, Mitch, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) It was so dear. But the reason I brought him up here is uh, because he attends conferences, Larry, around the world that are very high-level engineering, scientific, and physics conferences, because that's his field. And they are all, he told me, talking about God in scientific lingo. No one is allowed to use the word God because you'd get kicked out of the academy. But they have, it's like a a wink and a smirk, you know. They all know what they're talking about, and they revel in the mathematics and the physics that underlie the true unified field of the universe. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a connection between what you just said and One Mind, uh, which is the title of this book. One yes. Mind is basically a cover word for the absolute uh, cosmic uh uh, intelligence, right. uh, or let's face it, uh, God. Uh, right, let's face it, God. <laughs> so, you know, we can dance around let's these Let's put terms, our cards uh, on the table. <laughs> another, uh, you know, another uh, synonym for one mind is something that yes. also gets you into trouble, and that's the old term, the soul, uh, which yes. has a lot of religious baggage. So I, I've tried sure. to skirt those terms in order to to open people's minds up to the evidence for uh, a universal form of information and consciousness, regardless of what term one wants to apply to it. Uh, I have no objections to terms like the soul and God. As a matter of fact, I really like them. Uh, But the term that I use to cover all of that is the one mind. Yes. Well, you've done it really, really beautifully, and you touch upon such a vast array of topics that would, in another person's hands, be considered rather taboo. But the way you handle it and the way that you reference other leading figures in the field, for instance, uh, Dr. Alexander, the author of Proof of Heaven, the neurosurgeon who had his own near-death experience that just blew, helped to blow the field open, following very much, of course, on the, in the footsteps of Dr. Raymond Moody, who, right. who, God Almighty, I think it was 30 years ago, uh, wrote his first, what was it, Life After Life? Right. and. You know, so slowly and surely there have been these pioneers pushing forward, including yourself. What, when you look at uh, what you have come up with here, what have been some of the reactions you've had from some of your colleagues? Well, I think times are changing. You know, 30 years ago there would have been a lot of vehement militant uh, skepticism about this, but there's been almost none uh, I should knock wood, I suppose. Uh, it could come tomorrow, but I've had nothing but support <laughs> yes. from people from uh, fields as disparate as uh, medicine and, and, and physics and everything in between. There's just a, a shift in consciousness, I think, about the empirical evidence for this. All over the place, people are waking up to yes. the idea that, look, we're not making this stuff up. You know, right. it, the, right. the, the evidence is abundant. It's not going away. It comes at us from so many directions that uh, we can begin to put a 
together coherent model. You know, you mentioned Dr. Eben Alexander and his near-death experience. There are only 15 million additional Americans who have also had <laughs> near-death experiences. Yeah. So I, I think yeah. that, you know, you and I both would agree that the atmosphere has changed from what it was when you were at Bard College trying yeah. to get permission, please let me study <laughs> this, you right. know. Uh, well we're not asking people's permission anymore because it's just sort of in the air or in the water. Yes, I agree. It's in one of your colleagues' uh, words, Rupert Sheldrake's, it's in the morphogenetic field. And mm-hmm. you'd have to be blind if you don't see it or sense it, you know. So looking over uh, your uh the details, I mean, because you go into the telepathic and you go into the near-death experience, what is it that, of the stories that you have amassed, would you share with our audience a few that are are particularly um, salient in your review of what you've been uh, digging up over the past period of time? I'd be happy to. Uh, Yes, there are scores of personal stories and anecdotes that uh, people have contributed uh, to this. And uh, I think the stories are really important because they anchor this in meaningful ways in people's lives. The the one that yes. uh, I like the best in the book comes out of my own history as an identical twin. And uh, my mm-hmm. twin brother and I have shared these kinds of uh, telepathic and clairvoyant experiences all of my life. And Besides that, I'm married to a twin, and my wife Barbara and her twin brother have shared these things. And I've, one in the book, however, is... So uh, interesting. <laughs> what are the chances uh, of that kind of matching happening, you know? That's well, I don't really know if unique. I even understand that or not, but it's... Our yeah. labor, our, you know, our household has been sort of a twin laboratory over the years uh, with all this... Yes, right. ...what we just call <laughs> twin stuff going on. But one of yes. my favorite story in the book is... Uh, deals uh, with with two uh, twin girls, identical twin girls, who were four years old. Uh, they were uh, they lived in Spain, but one day the one of the twin girls stayed home to help her mother with household chores, while the father took the other little twin girl off to visit the grandparents, who were tens of miles away. And unfortunately, the little girl who stayed home to help her mom touched her hand to a red hot iron and immediately uh, erupted in a big blister, a second-degree burn on on her palm. It turns out uh, that the other twin girl, who was tens of miles away at the same time, erupted with a big blister on the same hand and the same part of the hand uh, as her sister, uh, tens mm-hmm. of miles away. Uh, th- th- this... It just can't be explained by coincidence. I mean, something seemed to unite these twin girls. And this is the sort of unity and oneness and connectedness that people often demonstrate who are very close emotionally to each other. You mentioned the word love a moment ago. I think love is the bond that uh, connects people over great distances and even through time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think you're right. And we have a... uh not only uh, a body of science that attests to that, but a body of poetry and literature and opera and, you know, the world's great artworks are all really, in a sense, testament to that idea you just put out, you know. It's it's so much about love. 
um, happy or sad and romantic or, in the case of Romeo and Juliet, tragic. Oh, sure. You know, but right. it really is that that binding, gluing force. So, so much. I so agree with you. Um, I see. You know, if if I may just share something, I I often feel, Larry, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this, but the notion of courtesy, respect, but I'm going to even focus on courtesy and the protocols that come with standard courtesy in uh, what is called a, sometimes a little too loosely, civilized society. But let's look at what is civilized, that, you know, someone opens a door for someone. I was on the subway the other day, and uh, a fellow got up and gave his seat to a woman and her child, and just done as a matter of course. And, of course, you know, in olden times, you know, that was done all the time, and then it seemed to take a bit of a dip, and perhaps some of the feminist movement had something to do with the way we interact with women and what was appropriate and what was not may have changed some for a while. But that aside, there is this tendency to just want to reach out and help one another, even if what appears to be small, small ways. And when I see that, Larry, in New York City or anywhere I am, I see that gesture of kindness. To me, it's embedded with love. That's what I see. Well, I could not agree with you more. Uh, it's it's interesting that you bring this up because I almost yep. uh, uh, got a section uh, in the book which was uh, excised by the editor because we just had too much material in the book, but it, yes. it was to be a chapter on manners <laughs> and, oh, and and curt and courtesy, and and I was going to use that as an example of uh, a transgender way of honoring someone else because of yes. a sense of connectedness and kindness and compassion, exactly yes. as you just put it, and I I think that uh, this is one of the the thousands of ways that. This idea that we're connected manifests uh, in common everyday uh, yeah. social behavior, and it's a shame I think that in some circles now, being kind to other people in terms of manners and courtesy is considered almost as an ethical compromise. I mean, I I, I hope we get through that. Uh, yes, get I agree. back to the idea where it is a way of honoring someone and yes. respecting the connections that all of us feel. Uh, so uh, I couldn't agree more. Yes, I hear you. I and I I I must have we must have a telepathic connection because or we <laughs> are able to read working. each other's minds. What? The one mind is at work in our conversation. It is at work. I think we've noticed this before, which is why we like each other like this. I know it. <laughs> But no, I'm really glad to hear that you were taking that domain that seriously, that you actually wrote it up and that an editor exercised her or his uh, editorial you know, authority is one thing. But I'm really glad to hear that you held and hold that domain to that level that you really had it as a chapter in the book because I feel also it's so worthy of that. And um, I believe that if children 
and adults are really invited to um, to really engage that level of protocol of of courtesy of manners of showing respect in sort of the old way of the chivalrous you know right. um, we really it really goes far to create civilized relationships and uh, it shouldn't be treated lightly you know you know uh, Mitchell I I did sneak in <laughs> the book uh, a kind of yes. uh, a connected idea about uh, courtesy. I, uh, I uh-huh. suggested in the book that it's time that we upgraded the golden rule from <laughs> do, do unto others as you would have them do unto you to something like be kind and compassionate to others because in some sense they are you. They are you. Exactly. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, well, you definitely snuck it in. And I'm going <laughs> to... Uh, we're going to move into some of the the deeper content of the book, but you're inspiring me. I, just last night, I, I put on an event here in New York, Larry, uh, with uh, a gentleman actually who had been a guest on the show, uh, David Christopher, who wrote a book that I think you would love called The Holy Universe, and it's a lyrical, poetic. Uh, description of scientific principles that are found in cosmology, in ecology, in evolutionary biology, and it is basically an exploration of consciousness. Not uh, purely subjective, but subjective and objective, yet uh, described, as I said, in poetic language. It's very beautiful. Anyway, I bring it up because... um, there's this notion you just spoke of, that beautiful new rendering of the Golden Rule, came out just even on, um, whether it was National Public Radio or CNN the other day, I was listening to something going on in Crimea, Russia, and Ukraine, and the U.S. and European responses. And the fellow being interviewed said, well, there are people in the United States who want Obama, who want Obama to take a stronger stand. But in Europe, they receive so much oil and gas from Ukraine, they really are pushing back against that and are really slow. And this was the golden phrase. He said, because in some sense we realized that whatever we do to them is also happening to us. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Sure. You know, it was beautiful. He said, I, we realized that when we hurt them, we are hurting ourselves. And, you know, you never know how this is going to creep into the mainstream mind, but there it was, you know, on CNN. Oh. You know. Well, that's beautiful. You know, I think most people resonate with this. If you If you talk to people other than diplomats and politicians, to the people on the street, there is a yearning to overcome these kinds of, manufactured uh, ways of separating uh, yeah. ourselves one from the other. There is a, a, an intuition that we uh, we need to connect, that we want to connect, because when we do, it feels right. And, yeah. and I think that this is a, a sense that is being played out in a planetary uh, way, and that actually, as we may talk about, our future may depend on the extent to which we permit ourselves to participate in this connectedness and unity and oneness that 
really, uh, I think, is in our DNA. Yeah, I I think you're so right. I oftentimes uh, turn to Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Unrest. And, you know, when we review the number of community organizations, the number of NGOs, the number of nonprofits, even even for-profit companies are working many for the good of people on the level of grassroots literally millions at this point larry of organizations helping with uh growing crops on local village levels of bringing electricity of building small schools and clinics uh you know just doing just the elbow grease of everybody getting into it all together, very much by the way, the way this country was originally founded, where they would everyone from the community would get together to build a barn for their neighbor. This was exactly. just and right it was, that was just the, what people did. There was community, and then what happened? Something happened. Well, I think one of the things that happened, Mitchell, is that we became almost hypnotized in the 20th century that uh, the rule of nature is isolation, it's competition, uh, and it's malice, not love, towards someone else. And I think we've just been bamboozled uh, to adopt a false view of who we are. And one of the uh, intentions behind this book is to try to break through that and show, even from solid science, uh, it can easily be construed as being the other way around. If we're able yes. to show, as I think uh, the the evidence points to, that there are no boundaries, there are no boundaries to consciousness, to the way our minds work. And if that is so, uh, uh, then at some point we come together uh, in some level, at some domain, in some level of consciousness to form a mm-hmm. unitary uh, form of mind. If we really were to get that. Uh, it would, I think, revolutionize our behavior on this fragile planet. Oh, do I think you are right. I really do. We are speaking with Dr. Larry Dossey, the author of One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Consciousness and Why It Matters. For those of you who have been following me and A Better World for any length of time, you've heard Larry Dossey on our show, both on radio and when he was in New York on TV, we had him on the show. And uh, his work, I, I believe, and I've said this many times over the years, is really a significant contribution to our understanding of the nature of what is considered intuitive and spiritual in scientific terms. And he's made a a truly significant contribution to the whole as a result of that. Larry, uh, you do quote Rupert Sheldrake, who we've also had on the show here, and I appreciate him very much, of his book called The Sense of Being Stared At. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to us about that, one of those chapter, that chapter in your book? Well, I think it's a very powerful demonstration of our connectedness uh, what has been done is that people have been tested in laboratories uh, in ways which it's impossible for them to communicate with each other by ordinary sensory means. They're totally out of touch, but uh, when one of them is hooked up to a closed-circuit TV uh, uh, gadget where he can see the other person, uh, when he stares at that person on the closed-circuit 
TV screen, more often than not, the person who's being stared at, even though it's through a TV circuit, can know when the person is connecting with them by a simple gaze. Uh, there have been many of these studies. The odds against chance that in these studies is over a million against one. These are mm. called staring studies. Sheldrake has been at the forefront of this uh, yeah. this kind of experiment, and it's just a vivid demonstration that even though we're far apart, when we think about one another, uh, the sense that that is happening can get through to the conscious mind. Uh, this is only one example of profound levels of experiments that show that we're not meant to be alone. Nature has not designed us to be completely isolated from one another. Right. Thoughts, uh, thoughts just thumb their nose at spatial separation. It's not fundamental. Yes. So right. uh, it, it also is important to me and my business as a doctor that uh, when people do increase their sense of interaction with one another, uh, they're healthier. They live longer. They have a lower incidence of all the major diseases on average, and they're, they tend to be happier and, and more creative and wiser. So if anyone thinks that uh, what we're talking about here, about this one mind business, is just philosophical armchair nonsense, they should revise this because yes. these these connectedness uh, feelings and emotions and, and so on that we experience uh, have extraordinarily practical benefits even to the the level of, of life and death. It's no exaggeration to say that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think that's well put. I think that's well put, absolutely. And if we really digest this, we will realize that, uh, you know, at the uh, risk of sounding like the old hippie that I really am, <laughs> that... Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, my friend. That war should be no more because we see that when we are pointing, well, I'll put it this way. My old Tai Chi teacher used to say to me down in Chinatown, Larry, that when somebody carries a gun, it's an expression of their own fear. Yeah. And yeah. to shoot or hurt someone is really just another way of hurting yourself, which is something, of course, you just said in a different way at the beginning of the show, and I, I completely agree with you, but it takes a certain kind of consciousness that is a kind of a gestalt consciousness to really get that, that there's really, in a sense, there's one mind in some way, there's also one being of which we are all part. And when you come to that level of... Uh, experience it's as you put it and as Eckhart Tolle puts it uh very well I think in both cases it's a felt knowing it's a felt experience it's not just a mental thought and mental thoughts are great but this is another level of knowing I we could say another level of consciousness um right and Oh, absolutely and if I might add uh, one of the please. great artists of the 20th century who understood that to do violence to someone else is to do it to yourself, is the sculptor Oldenburg, uh, who has that great sculpture outside the UN buildings of a pistol with the barrel oh, curve yes. pointing sure. back to the shooter. And it's yes. one of the most vivid demonstrations of, yeah. of what we're discussing here that has been rendered in modern art, I think. Yes, 
exactly. I know exactly what you mean. It's right by the entrance. I've walked by it a million times, and yeah, it's it's very very poignant. Um, when you talk about mind beyond brain, mm-hmm. could you talk about that a little bit? Well, in the 20th century, uh, we learned that uh, mind is brain. Uh, You know, it's the chemistry and the anatomy of the brain that produces mind. Uh, That uh, has to be, I think, declared neuromythology. It's a (laughs) faith-based belief. It's faith-based. There's no evidence, uh, no compelling evidence for it. And Mm -hmm. what uh, I think we should be focusing on, Mitchell, is the uh, evidence that shows that m- minds can do things brains just can't do. Uh, mm-hmm. They can op- minds can operate at a distance through telepathy, clairvoyance, uh, precognition, uh, premonitions, and so on. We can mm-hmm. actually in- insert information into the world at a distance and change the function, for example, of random number generators. There's just no question that this goes on. But all of this is prohibited by this idea that brain uh, is uh, the sole home for consciousness. It isn't. Uh, This idea is going to be looked on historically as just a quaint belief, and I think our descendants are going to say, why did they hang on to this idea for so long? Mm. Uh, So we're talking evidence here from a whole variety of, of experiments that show that consciousness can operate as if it has no boundaries. Uh, either in space or time. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think that this is just a vital recognition. For one thing, it it, it permits the uh, the uh, uh, idea that consciousness, since it's not dependent upon the brain totally, it may survive the annihilation of the brain with bodily death. And this opens a huge spiritual dimension and gets us into the possibility that consciousness can be eternal and immortal, which I think uh, is affirmed by a lot of experiences, such as the near-death experiences that you've mentioned before. Yes, sure, sure. Yes, I I think that's, uh, you know, very well well put, Larry. I I have myself, I love that word neuromythology. (laughs) It's great. Um, (laughs) Though I'm going to admit I have utterly fallen in love with the research that's coming out of neuroscience these days, and I... I feel uplifted by it because just as when you were talking about uh, love before, I was thinking, uh, I love looking at things physiologically, so maybe that's one of my, I don't know if it's a strength or weakness, but uh, I, I think oxytocin. I said, of course God made it that we're all supposed to love each other and we're supposed to be <laughs> social also. That's what you were talking about, that we're not meant to be islands and isolated, but to be together we are truly social animals. <clears throat> we co- we survive by cooperation among ourselves, and neuroscience has helped us see that cooperative spirit that's literally wired into us, even though Darwin had us think that it was survival of the fittest, that it was competition, and that has been virtually proven to be untrue. And in the same way, I guess when I think about things such as telepathy and even clairvoyance, Larry, I think of the brain and the whole nervous system, actually, as a very subtle, refined um, antenna that is able to reach into 
different dimensions even to conduct information back through to some level of consciousness that we could recognize and see, uh, experience sensorily, and then report on. Well, I think that's uh, really a very good way to put it. Uh, I don't want to offend people who uh, are intrigued by the developments in modern neuroscience. I myself am a neuroscience junkie. Uh, I, okay, I rejoice. Good, I'm not people. alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. yeah, I, but I think uh, it's a mistake when we give everything over to the brain. Yes, uh, indeed. You know, you mentioned Sheldrake. Uh, his working metaphor for the connection between the consciousness and brain is that consciousness is a conduit or a receiving apparatus which uh, consciousness works through but yes. is not produced by the brain. Uh, yes. No more than, for example, David Letterman is produced by the television set. I mean, he shows yes, up on it, right. he <laughs> manifests through it, but nobody in their right mind would say that David Letterman is made or produced by the television set. We know that's not true. He exists that's a really external good analogy. To it. And in the same sense, I think uh, yes. consciousness operates through the brain, but by no means, sure. by no means sure. is produced by the brain and is certainly not confined to it. Well, we wholly agree, again. So, no, and that's a very good analogy. It's sort of like saying the the hardware of your computer is producing the software. Well, yeah. of course it's not, but it is yeah. the conduit for it through which we can actually see it and utilize it. So, yeah. Okay. You know, that's a, that's a model and a metaphor, if I might add, that uh, William James, the father of American psychology, ad- adopted sure. as his own working metaphor, although – uh, he used the term radio since he came mm-hmm. in when the radio was invented and television was in the yeah. future. But people yeah. for a long time have been using this metaphor that brain is a marvelous transducer of consciousness, and uh, yes. but not an originator of consciousness. But not an originator. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, it's an important distinction. Uh, there's something in the beginning of your book that I uh, really touched me because I, I'm very tuned into the subject of global warming and what we humans are doing to our precious planet, which is the, the true mother Gaia of us all. And even though we have a local mother as we have a local brain, you know, uh, right. we have a larger one, and that's Gaia herself, living being, no less. And right. you reflect so... Uh, thoughtfully on the where we are and who we are relative to dealing and you talked about you know climate deniers but you also referred to as climate ignorers and uh, I, I would like to hear what you have to say about the relationship of our further and further cultivating this one mind and what its implications can be for us dealing head-on, no pun intended, with yeah. uh, the the planetary crises at hand. Well, this is one of the major reasons I wrote this book. Uh, I think I kind of got that feeling in reading that portion of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Please. I. Uh, yeah. It's a a crisis moment for us. And yes. It's not at all clear that this is going to end well. 
I don't think probably we need to spell out the global crises that confront us to people who listen to this program, but we are in deep trouble. And I think that one of the reasons that we are destroying the only home we have is because this uh, epidemic of greed and selfishness stems from this idea that we're isolated beings, independent from one another. We have no sense of unity, empathy, and connectedness. Unless we can get beyond this, I don't think the future bodes well for us at all. Alice Walker, the great novelist, said that anything we love can be saved. And so the question Mm -hmm. comes down, what do we love? I mean, do we love all of sentient life on the earth enough that we are willing to change our behavior in order to preserve it? Do we sense our connectedness that what we do to the earth redounds to us? And if we don't, I think that uh, we can write off our future uh, at some point. And I just think that this idea of oneness and connectedness and unity between not just people, but between humans and the rest of sentient organisms on this earth is going to be absolutely vital and crucial if we're going to survive. I so hear from your mouth to God's ears, basically, yes, I I completely agree. And I think that that idea of uh, love and what we love we can save is probably really core to the pivot we need to take and make in order to really get through this. I because of the way I understand the mind and the brain both work, uh, and I think they can both be worked together, that, uh, and I know you feel this way too about hope, and uh, you could say the physiology of hope, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. when we say, not just hope, but we assert that we can do something and we are doing something, and every bit as much as we can to turn the ship around. And we know that miracles are, uh, how is it put by St. Augustine? Not contrary to nature, but a part of nature we know little of. I That's right. didn't get it directly, but something of that ilk. And I do think that thinking about the miraculous, Not in the ordinary, it sounds so funny, an ordinary miracle. No, no, not in the way that we think about it as supernatural, but really as very natural. But we have to raise our consciousness to the level that we can actually manifest them. And we can use this one mind consciousness you continue to refer to as the lever, if you will, to affect the changes we need to do well i couldn't agree more yeah you know where consciousness is concerned one and one don't make only two but they may make 10 or a thousand and who knows exactly you know there have been uh, periods in civilization before where we saw this incredible alchemy of consciousness expand beyond the arithmetic and one of the uh, great examples is the italian renaissance I used to have this idea that the Renaissance happened because, you know, 51% of the Italian population began to look at things in a different way, and it and it was never like that. 
Uh-huh. Renaissance happened because a few families, just a few families, uh, had so much influence that they shouldered the burden of the new way of looking at uh, the world. And so uh-huh. we don't have to, you know, convert uh, 3.5 uh, plus 1 billion people on the earth to come over to our way of thinking because uh, we're not dealing with uh, mere summation and simple arithmetic here. In the domain of consciousness, the realization and the awakening of just a few people can exert exponential influence across the face of the earth. And I think it's important to realize this because it does away with a lot of the hopelessness that so many awakened people feel. You know, a lot of us think that, you know, we can change out all of our light bulbs, uh, but that's still not going to make much difference, and that's right. But because we're connectedness through consciousness, uh, influence works in a different way. And I think that sort of helps us take the pressure off and realize that this is not hopeless. Uh, We can make a difference, and individual acts can mushroom beyond the individual to God knows what. But it's a way of being, uh, feeling less isolated and less helpless and more hopeful as we face the future. I I couldn't agree with you more, frankly. Uh, you're bringing to mind two things. One is uh, Ralph Nader's uh, book of about a year and a half ago. I had him on the show, and he was speaking. It was a, not just him alone on a roundtable uh, prior to the last election, Larry. And um, he was talking about in his book that we need a few per, a few super billionaires to invest in a new infrastructure and education and, you know, new renewable resources to get us off this bloody, literal insanity of nuclear energy use in this country, uh, which is, you know, we don't even have to go on about how dangerous and insane it is with these aging plants and, uh, jeopardizing urban areas like New York City with Indian Head plant about 19 miles away from the epicenter of Manhattan. Uh, and he said it really would take just a handful of, of billionaires to make the investment in our future, and a good investment it would be from an economic point of view as well, uh, to really turn things around. And it was it was a controversial book, of course, because everything he says is deemed controversial. But it was interesting, especially from the point of view that you're speaking of here. And if you notice on the bottom of my uh, signature on email, I've been using the Margaret Mead quote for a long time. Yes. And that famous quote, right, of never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So it just, you know, corroborates what you're what you're saying here. Well, uh, you know, I think how, that when yeah. I think that uh, when a change in consciousness occurs uh, in our culture, honoring our connectedness instead of our division and separation, uh, those billionaires that Nader speaks about will arise. I think what comes first is consciousness 
and then the decisions about how people are going to spend their fortunes. The change in consciousness then allows a cascade of solutions to fall into place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, mm-hmm. I just think that uh, the vital change in, is how we conceive ourselves, whether greed and selfishness and individuality continue to dominate our sense of who we are, or whether we can grok our connectedness and unity and permit that to influence our decisions about how we behave. Yes, exactly, exactly. I'd love to ask you, because of your um, long-term work as a doctor and familiarity with neuroscience and physiology overall, I, I can I run something by you, which is my sure. my theory of greed. And um, despite the the psychological aspect, I have, of course, an explanation, as I think we all do, about where greed comes from psychologically with uh, uh, a feeling of deprivation that occurs in early life, which probably goes back to um, Margaret Mahler's notions of our object relations theory of our relationship to our mother's breast, if we had one at all, and not getting the nipple when it is we so wanted it. Um, And uh, I really do believe that uh, the formation of our psychology does begin, well, in utero, frankly, but coming out a little bit further uh, has a lot to do with the um, sensorial relationship we have with our mother, especially, not only, but especially. And when we're being fed or not fed or when we think we need to be fed and we're not fed at that moment. And so we end up, people end up grabbing and clinging and, and, and have this powerful ambition to acquire far beyond anything that's reasonable or balanced. And, of course, they become what we could refer to then as greedy um, right. and self-possessed. You know? But I'm wondering... In your experience as a doctor, uh, do you see that there are hormonal imbalances, for instance, that would correlate with uh, a personality trait such as greed? Or even narcissism, for that matter. What's that? I I have no doubt that uh, there's tremendous human variation biochemically and hormonally uh, from conception, probably, that Mm -hmm. uh, hugely shape the way people behave later in life. But one thing that never receives enough billing are those uh, experiences that happen early in life uh, that have to do with connectedness. I'll just mention one. It's the maternal-infant bond. Uh, Probably the maternal-infant bond is the quintessential example of uh, human connectedness. Uh, There have been studies that have been done between mothers and uh, children showing that uh, compassion and empathy correlate with the ability for telepathy and clairvoyance between mothers and their children. This Mm. never gets mentioned. You know, we talk Mm. about uh, the things that make us clutch and be greedy and so on that seem to have their roots early in life, but we don't emphasize this fact that there is this complementary push uh, toward intimate connectedness that that transcends even space and time. We need to uh, emphasize that as well as the other uh, factors that push us toward uh, individuality. Because as long as we concentrate on the things that uh, put 
push us toward a sense of isolation and oneness and, uh, excuse me, individuality, then we're isolation looking at only one island. side of the yeah. coin. True. And so there's a true complementarity going on here, and a complementarity in science is the recognition that there are things that appear mutually exclusive, both of which are real, which have to be added together to give a full picture of what something is. So I think we can overdo it with this sense of uh, uh, isolation and individuality, and God knows it's important, but so too are the factors of unity and oneness and connectedness, which are equally real. Equally real and actually more powerful and interesting, (laughs) you know. And and, well, and I, a whole lot more useful, you know. So no, I very much appreciate your your making that point because if we're going to build a better society, a better world, you know, it's uh, looking at that relationship, that uh, pre and perinatal relationship of mother to child, and it's so interesting that the research you're saying bears out that the deeper that connection, uh, what emerges, the results are greater compassion and love that person carries with them in the rest of their lives. It's, that's you know, I think and, uh, we really need yeah. to talk about what contributes to survival. You know, this is yes. uh, the Darwinian concept that says that uh, things that contribute to our survival are perpetuated genetically, and so we do talk about competition and struggle and and uh, that sort of thing as being absolutely necessary for survival, and it is. But it is beginning to appear that if we're going to survive, we're going to have to honor connectedness and oneness and unity because these are beginning to take on ultimate survival uh, importance. Values. Yeah. So, you know, even if we want to put survival into the the, the uh, equations of humanity, they are beginning to take on a different picture from the old classical Darwinian Titian picture. That's right. That's right. And, you know, uh, in Lynn McTaggart's book, The Bond, yes. Oh, uh, yes, she outlines, you know, a volume of science, neuroscientific literature which corroborates the idea that bonding love, cooperation over competition is what really drives survival. And it's a radically different notion than we've all been programmed to accept. And even Darwin never stated, as far as I know, that what he had to say was wholly correct. He really, I think, floated it out as a a hypothesis worthy of reflection, but not as hard-wired scientific fact. And clearly it's not. And so emphasizing what you're talking about, Larry, will help with parenting. And uh, there's clearly no manual that comes at birth to parents. So knowing the kind of material you're speaking of today in this show as well as in your book can really go a far way in helping people realize the value of love scientifically. I mean, we don't have to be proven to us that love is beautiful. I see science as a 
an undergirding to help uh, the scientifically-minded, left-brained people understand a whole-brained experience, you know. But we don't need science for that. But it sure is handy in the kind of society that we've developed. You know, uh, one of the scientists I quote who stood up for the fact that there is, at some level, one mind was the 20th century physicist David Bohm. And I had the opportunity to ask him uh, in a hallway conversation once, Dr. Bohm, do you think we're going to make it? And he thought and thought and finally said, yes, Larry, we'll make it barely. So (laughs) I... You know, on my uh, on my down days, I go back to that, and I I, yeah. I will accept barely. Uh, yeah. But this is a man who thought deeply about uh, how people are connected, and was yes. one of the great proponents of the one mind. Yes, exactly, exactly. Very articulate about it, and has helped, I think, advance our understanding of its nature. So, yep. in this book, you know, you have really helped to further advance it as well because you have such an outreach. Uh, one of the things that you talk about, and I very much appreciated it, having spent some time in India, was the distinctions in consciousness that you couldn't use one blanket word the way we have it in English. You know, the the Indians have it sort of like the Eskimos have about snow, about a hundred different kinds. And I love your your very thoughtful and kind of um, humbled, you know, discussion of that, that at the beginning of the book. <laughs> Could you share that with our audience? And, uh, we have a well, few yes, more minutes I, uh, as you do. <laughs> I, back in uh, the late 80s, I was invited to lecture in India uh, to yes. uh, to physicians who uh, about the evidence that mind and body are connected. Uh, and I thought, this is really crazy. You know, here I am in a culture that's 5,000 years old where this whole idea has been honored. But they wanted to hear about the latest research, so I told them. And then one of the doctors in the Q&A session got up and said, Dr. Dossie, uh, will you tell us more fully what you mean by mind? He said, in my tradition, we have 40 ways of speaking of the mind. Now you're going to tell us which one you mean. <laughs> And I was caught flat-footed and, you know, sort of uh, bullied my way through some sort of non-answer, which didn't satisfy anybody. But uh, just to say the way we use mind and consciousness in our culture would horrify uh, even uh, an amateur uh, (laughs) scientist in India. Yeah, exactly right. That's right. Or Tibetan Buddhist psychologist. <laughs> you know, it's very yeah. true. They have yeah, right. such fine distinctions. You know, even the bardo. I mean, you're talking about near-death experiences, and they have just in that one text, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, you can discern any number of different levels or dimensions, even better, of consciousness that we pass through when we. Um, de-body when we disembody you know and for us you're alive or you're dead you know end of story that's right don't bother me with fine points and distinctions that's right exactly exactly it's like saying to an eskimo as i was saying before you know snow is snow no it's not or you know to an irishman whiskey is whiskey what are you crazy (laughs) 
funny. No, this is wonderful. I, I so appreciate, Larry, really what you do. I've said that a number of times, and I, I don't say it lightly at all. I, you're, you're studied, you're scholarly, you're thoughtful, and you're deeply caring, and it all comes through all of your books, actually, all of them, with a, you know, a serious, sober mind, but with a light touch. And uh, I should write a book review for you, shouldn't I? <laughs> and, uh, um, and, uh, but, it, but it's really true, and I, I really honor you and thank you for being a guest on our show again. And I feel you help to enrich our audience and all of the audiences that, you, uh, that are lucky enough to hear you. Well, it's great to dialogue with you, Mitchell, and I hope we can do so again. I'd love to. I'd love to. Give your website, if you would, so people can go. It's LarryDossieMD.com. That's D-O-S-S-E-Y, LarryDossieMD.com. Wonderful. Well, Larry Dossie, no wonder you have so many people, Deepak Chopra, Christian Northrup, Bernie Siegel, Ken Wilber, endorsing and praising your book because it's well-deserved, and I I very much appreciate it, and we'll certainly have you on again. So, Well, thank you, and thanks to all of the listeners. Okay. Be well now. Thanks. You again. too. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I so appreciate your being on the show with me today. Our website is www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv, if you have not yet gotten onto our mailing list, our newsletter, please do. We welcome your participation. It's free. Uh, there we announce the radio show every week and who we'll have on. Sometimes I do solo shows and I invite you to be the guest so we can dialogue about any number of topics from personal to professional to global. And uh, we also talk about who we'll have on the TV show every week, which, by the way, I would like to uh, formally announce uh, this week and next week it will be on at the same time of 10.30 on Tuesday nights, Eastern Standard Time. But on the 24th of March, it will switch to Monday at 7 p.m. This is a new time, Monday at 7 p.m. in New York because uh, we've been wanting for uh, a new time, and this is what it will be for now. So also you can check on our website at betterworld.tv for any number of different events coming up. We recently had a lot going on here in New York. Last night we had David Christopher on, as I mentioned before, and The Holy Universe, brilliant book and uh, truly poetic, but mixed with science, and it was the launch of the newly constituted FIONS, Friends of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, on which I am uh, a board member, and several friends are as well, and we are giving it new life, and last night FIONS um, uh, joined A Better World in sponsoring this event at the Meta Center, which went very, very well. People really, really enjoyed the the depth of dialogue. And did we capture it? You know, we're going to have David Christopher on TV. I did two interviews with him while he's been here in New York from the West Coast. And so stay tuned for those because they're wonderful. He and I both have been um, 
inspired by the Pachamama Alliance, which was founded by Lynn and Bill Twist, Lynn who was the head of the Hunger Project through Werner Erhardt way back in the 70s and 80s and raised, my God, I think in excess of $100 million, something close to it for the Hunger Project and helped to expedite the uh, closing the gap on hunger, not the end of, as was hoped for, but closing the gap and so much good work has been done in its name over the course of years. And she, Bill, and John Perkins, the author of Confessions of an Economic Hitman, a uh, name you probably know, uh, founded the Pachamama Alliance in conjunction with the Achuar Indians in Equatorial Amazon. And their Amazonian life is jeopardized by the interests of a series of U.S., Chinese, and Korean oil companies that just can't wait to start drilling. Yet, that area is the most biodiverse area on the planet, rivaled only by other areas of the uh, Amazon, Peruvian, Brazilian, Bolivian, and by Costa Rica, that all con constitutes one lung of the earth. The other is in the Congo. I recently learned from Sally Cox, who we had on the show, who started the Bonobo Conservation Initiative. <clears throat> For that show and the show with uh, David Christopher in January can be heard, I should say, on a better world TV in our radio archive, just put their names into the search engine, or just go to the radio archive and scroll through, and you will find uh, both of these. They're just rich. Well, you'll also with Sally Cox, that opens actually with Marianne Williamson, who is running on an independent ticket for U.S. Congress out of California in the L.A. area. So. May as well get a few birds with one stone, as they say. Crude image, isn't it? But uh, you understand what I mean. <clears throat> anyway, the Pachamama Alliance is holding a workshop April 4th through 6th in Delaware, Smyrna, Delaware, Smyrna. And if you were to call me at 212 420-0800 for more information on that, or email mjr at abetterworld.net. Not to mention, I love hearing from you, and I love uh, receiving your comments about our shows, etc., our work. Uh, I will direct you to that. I am going to be there. I feel that uh, taking another step in this direction to support the work of the Pachamama Alliance, which is supporting our very lives on this planet by helping to change the mindset of uh, our Western mind, or as David Christopher in his book, uh, The Holy Universe Talls, the modern mind, in contradistinction to the ancient mind, needs to forge a new planetary mind where we are not going for the I, 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 me, 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 
as kind of uh, Larry and I were just discussing, but going for the we, for the us, for the cooperative, for the team, for the group, for the community, for the clan, for the tribe, for the whole human and sentient earthly family, because we belong here, we are here, we are from here, genetically and in every way. Yes, ultimately, we're stardust. I know. But now we are here to tend to the earth herself. So let's get on with it. And this is one way to help get further deeply ensconced in that energy field, in that mindset. And I don't know if I need further ensconcing. I kind of live there, but I'm doing it anyway because I, I want, I like the people, I like the community, I love the commitment to the shift of consciousness in our world, so we start to become stewards. And this, of course, refers back to the book that I wish I had more time to complete called Sacred Stewardship, Awakening the Soul to Action, which has everything to do with our awakening ourselves immediately and uh, getting on with actions we can take personally and collectively to shift the consciousness, which in turn will shift the actions so that we are not reliant on fossil fuels anymore. So we are not putting down the same carbon footprint. And some say it's too late. Hunter Lovins, who wrote the book Climate Capitalism, again, you can go back into our archive. Hunter Lovins is the ex-wife of Amory Lovins probably the greatest environmentalist on our North American continent, uh, up in Aspen, Colorado, uh, says that scientifically, yeah, we're beyond the point. Uh, Bill McKibben at 350.org probably says something similar. So the data actually shows that our ship is almost sunk, you know, but that word almost is an important one. And it's not sunk because... Nature is miraculous and has a way given a gentle touch of love, a gentle way of uh, care that we reduce our damage. Our damaging footprint gives her a chance to, no pun intended, breathe new life into the homeostatic state that would allow us to re- position ourselves on earth so the ice caps will slow down the melting so the geometrical damage that would otherwise be happening and actually is happening can be reversed and we do have people scientists and others who do say that if we were to throw the brakes on now and really reverse our habits now that it's going to take some time yes but that we can avert the sixth dis extinction. So that's important, folks, for obvious reasons. We were given our lives. We were given this earth. We were given life itself for a reason. And it needs to be in part for preserving life well as encouraging it. And those are my final words tonight. I hope you enjoyed the show. Dr. Larry Dossie, again, 
one mind, how our individual mind is part of a greater consciousness, and why it matters. So important. I so appreciate Dr. Dossi. He's made, as I said so many times, a valid and valuable contribution to our overall understanding of the relationship of mind to spirit to consciousness to body. His work has really been seminal in understanding the role of prayer, in understanding the role of language, the role of words in health, in healing, in well-being. So, again, I so appreciate your being part of a better world. It warms my heart when you tune in. And yes, do go to our website. We have a lot of activity. Last week, as I started to say, we have uh, had the Encompass uh, New Opera Theater that had a dynamic film festival, Eco Film Festival, in Brooklyn near BAM. And one of the films that I saw out there was the latest uh, version of the film by the, about the Kogi. Uh, who first came out with, uh, well, they didn't come out with, but they uh, were the stars, if you will, uh, from the heart of the world by the British uh, director and filmmaker, Alan, uh, is it Reiner, I believe it is. I'm so sorry if I missed that, uh, mixed that up. But uh, he made a sequel at their request some 20 years later, saying, new now, what? What have been the changes since we last spoke to our younger brother? And what we see is the changes haven't been anywhere near enough to, to actually ensure our sustenance, our existence. But there have been changes made, and I want to acknowledge that. But the film, I would really recommend it, it's called Aluna, and the Encompass New Opera Theater has the exclusive American rights on that film, and we saw it for its premiere showing in Brooklyn just this past weekend. Oh, these are the kinds of things we bring forward to our guests, to our audience, to our website viewers, to our newsletter readers. There aren't many places where you can find this. God knows there are wonderful alternative media outlets these days. Thankfully, we have Democracy Now!, we have Gary Knoll's Progressive Radio Network, we have any number of my friends and colleagues who have their own respective shows. They don't quite do what we do here, and then again, we don't do what they do there. I respect all. It's all part of a larger collective that we're all part of so your participation literally is just so appreciated yes there is the possibility of your making donations to our show yes there's the possibility of your advertising on our website so get something for yourself we're all for it and uh, we have a better world promotions with very fair very fair rates for people who are selling product or services or promoting their events or their concerts, their theater pieces, their films. And we are a forum for all of that. So with that, I bid thee leave. I wish you the best. It's been a pleasure. God bless all. A 
abetterworld.tv. We love that you're part of our A Better World. On that note, I look forward to seeing you all next week. Follow us on Twitter. On that note, good night.